Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Leah Walsh, and this is Rosette, the podcast. Leah here, and I'm really excited to let you know that today's episode is an interview with Julie Franqueur, who is the CEO of Fairtrade Canada. I'm so excited I got to sit down with her and ask her some questions, and she was so interesting and had so much insight into sort of beyond just the certification process within Fairtrade Canada, who in Canada is often thought of as a certifier, probably because I also kind of talk about it that way. (laughs) But anyway, I'm so pleased that Julie could uh, join me today, and it's a really awesome interview. And without further ado, let's jump right into it. Nice to meet you. I've known Modi for a long time, but I don't think we've ever met. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I said to myself, it'll be nice to actually meet Julie because I've never actually had that chance. I've only ever sort of, we've been in each other's orbit. <laughs> yeah, or maybe we might have seen each other in like a fair trade conference. Did you go to Dawson? I, I Yeah, I've probably... Like point, been in a, I've definitely been in a room with you. I'm sure that must be true. <laughs> <laughs> if not, it will happen in the near future, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Could I get you to really quickly just introduce the organization you're affiliated with and your position there? So I currently work for Fairtrade Canada. Uh, Fairtrade Canada is the national organization leading fair trade certification and fair trade development work in Canada and it's part of the international fair trade system um, and I'm the CEO of Fair Trade Canada and I have been in the fair trade international system for over 13 years but prior to my work in Fair Trade Canada I was in working for Fair Trade International. Do you listen to podcasts or are you more of like a reader or like a um, I, I used to a lot more the last two years. I haven't like, I'll listen to like an episode that someone has pointed out, but I haven't gotten into like a podcast series in a long yeah. while. Um, the last one I listened to, which was fascinating. And I kind of put it as like, Oh, I need to listen to more of those is, um, is a series called Conspirituality. I don't know if you've heard no. about them. It's they, they do this intersection. They try to study and analyze the intersection between you know, spirituality and the kind of, uh, not necessarily health, but like, yeah, spirituality world of like yoga and health, wellness, wellness is a better word, I guess, and health. And where sometimes conspiracy theories and how sometimes those two words, worlds, you know, come together. And there was a specific um, one around, you know, the wellness sector being involved in the Ottawa convoy and, oh. and and how those those two worlds correlate. So it's fascinating. And the two guys are really, really smart, Canadian and an American wow. uh, leading this. So I'll see if I would listen to some of the other episodes. I'm more of a book person. So when I have, do have time, I try to actually disconnect, not be on any, you know, digital device and read a book on paper. <laughs> what are you reading right now? Can I ask? It's called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. I haven't enjoyed all of his books, but this one piqued my interest because it's about how, in, you know, in a world where we're strangers and correlate or have to interact with people who are completely strangers to us, you know, come from another reality, another culture, another background, how do we sometimes get caught in making a lot of assumptions that aren't right about them? 
Um, so it looks at like historical moments of strangers having gotten each other wrong and how do we get each other better and try to understand strangers without making assumptions. So very interesting. So when I do have time, that's the one I'm taking back up to read, read a bit more when I have time. That sounds rad. Um, I always like talking to people who do podcasts because they always come at it from a different angle. So I'm curious. I was interesting to see, just so to see your questions. And I like the experience too that it gives me. So it's not just visibility, but it's, you know, doing those is like a muscle. Like the more you have in- interviews with others and the more you relate. Um, and the other part is I, you've done some really interesting stuff with but both with Rosette, uh, the Rosette Network, but also with this. So keen to contribute and help this because I think it's been a really interesting project you've led for the last uh, couple oh, of years. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I love trade and business. And to me, fair trade is just that natural connection of the two. Like, how do you actually do development, not through charity, not through aid, but to something meaningful that wouldn't just plain normal, just paying people fairly. Um, so sometimes people think fair trade can is like a certification. And while there is that aspect, it's definitely using a certification for the rest of the work we do, which is really development and supply chain building and relationship building between full industry. So within the coffee industry of the roaster, the importer, the green bean importer, the exporter and the producers and, and, and building those relationships um, over time, but also education, awareness raising. So there's a lot more to what we do than the audit and certify and label part. Um, so yeah, we're a development organization much more than yeah. just a certification work. So then were you, I mean, so <laughs> I don't know how to ask this without possibly offending you age-wise. Like to me, you don't look <laughs> old enough to have been like okay. working professionally for that long. So so like, I, 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 I didn't just, do I wonder- <laughs> This was child labor. I started as a child. No. <laughs> I wondered, like, did you did you come no. right out of university? Like, you took development Pretty and much. took that and came right out of university and started working with Fairchild International? or Yes. So I graduated in 2005 um, and did a stint uh, from McGill University in, in International Development Studies and Political Science and okay. um, went in to work with Equitaire which I don't know if you know them, they're mostly based in Quebec, but yes. at the time I was leading the fair trade advocacy and responsible clothing campaign. Uh, like, you know, I was waitressing to make money because they I don't, I don't even think it was a paid internship, but it started that way and then eventually it was a paid position. And, um, but then, and then worked in Bolivia and something completely different and started with fair trade international in 2008. Um, <sighs> As a, my first title was liaison officer in the Windward Islands, so I'm based in Saint Lucia, which is a small island in the Caribbean, and I worked in um, organizational strengthening, so working on making cooperatives stronger organizations. And yes, there's a portion around compliance and under you know helping uh, mostly banana producers understand uh, and apply and mitigate. You know how do we comply with fair trade standards and mitigate around those that are difficult to, to, to organize, but also the governance of their co-ops and how they're structured. Um, so I was based in St. Lucia for three, yeah, three years, uh, responsible for all of the Caribbean basin. So in an Anglophone and Francophone Caribbean basin, so Haiti, Jamaica, all the way down to a lot of Anglo, like English-speaking islands that are all independent countries, Dominica, St. Vincent, Trinidad, 
uh, Grenada, Barbados, etc., but also Belize um, and Guyana. So banana farmers, sugar farmers, spices, a number of other crops, and then moved to Argentina, where I was based for five years, um, also overseeing field operations of Fairtrade International, which was really interesting and, and a lot, a completely different challenge and also very different um, commodities and, and realities. So working with wine producers, olive oil, fruits, um, vegetables, and, and yeah, a number of, of different realities and starting to build also the market in the South for Fairtrade. So helping um, fair trade wine grow producers in Argentina sell their wine within, not just, you know, to export um, as fair trade, but to also sell in Buenos Aires and hotels as fair trade, or to also build a fair trade market um, in the South. So which was really interesting. And I moved back to Canada after 10 years abroad, I moved back five years ago, and it'll be five years of fair trade Canada in, in July. Amazing. So, yeah, I started young. I guess, and it was most of my career. Yeah, I'm a 37 today, so we're not. Yeah, still today I am. <laughs> Lose track of my age too, I suppose. And me too. When we when we get in that range, we just sort of it doesn't matter anymore. You pass yeah. 30, and you're like, what does it? What does it matter? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I'm yeah. more. Whereas my kids are like, am I eight and a half yet? I'm like, yes, the <laughs> half is very important. It's so true. Do you remember, like in my experience, I asked Aaron this as well from Fairtrade Calgary, but like there tends to be that sort of like aha moment for people where they become interested in like, it seems, it seems for you that like, maybe that was with development as opposed to Fairtrade specifically at first, because you did sort of study related to international development. Whereas I know that like Aaron was primarily an engineer and then sort of later on in life, she learned about this stuff. Um, Do you remember what that sort of like, spark was that got you interested in these types of issues i think it, it always was very like i kind of refer to it as like social justice in general and the wide umbrella of social justice and the different causes it takes that inequalities and you know social injustices always were really you know unfair to me even as a child yeah um i come from a family where helping others that had like didn't have much my mom was this like single mother who was like trying to get a steady job as a teacher and lived in like a housing co-op but even if we had little we would help those who had even less and that was like you know if you have a bit you help others who have less and you can ask for help of others who have more and and that was really you know from from little that was there um my mom was uh, from a large family who grew up on the farm and a lot of the stories, you know, of my grandparents were like, you know, of poverty on the farm and trying to raise kids. So that linkage of like poverty from farmers and people who grew up food and the importance of, you know, food and, and life was always something that was adamant. But I do have one moment that I, re- I remember precisely. I'm not quite sure how old I was. Must have been like nine or 10. And I'm homesick. And at the time, I guess it was OK to leave your kids alone at home <laughs> yep, latchkey home kids alone. me too yep <laughs> yes I'm home alone and I'm watching tv and we had like two channels on tv and it's you know before cartoon networks and any of those things so you know in the middle of the day there's nothing for kids on tv because they're supposed to be at school I'm watching tv slightly feverish I suppose and there's a very long infomercial by World Vision. I think it's World Vision. I don't know. Like, there's a really long infomercial, like, adopt, like, call now, adopt a child kind of infomercial. And whereas now I think of these things like, oh, my God, this is just completely wrong way to do development. But I remember 
remember sitting there and be like, oh, like this is another child who was like my age somewhere who's seen in, you know, and it was a typical like fly on the face type of commercial, like call now, adopt this. And I, I had the phone, it was like a you know, rotary phone. And I thought like I dialed the whole number, just wouldn't like dial the last one because I knew my mom would be like, what, what did you do? Why did you call this to me? But it was just this like, how can how can it be that kids, you know, I had seen poor children, but like within the bandwidth of you know poverty in Canada, not not that other level like of extreme poverty. And I think it just raised something like I, I need to do something. So from like I, I guess I started talking about it at home. My mom started find me books, you know, about, you know, on the, it was the beginning of the free to children movement back then. <laughs> and some of the first books, you know, like the Kilberger kids like, well, if he's 11 and I'm nine, then like I can, so that already like really early and in high school, getting into understanding like landmines, because we had a presentation by the Red Cross at school or understanding like, so I was always very like, how do you make the world a must like a much more fairer place, not just locally, but you know, internationally as well. So I think that, that angle of social justice is always there from really small. Wow. And it's funny because now this is the, entirely the type of development that like I, I'm happy fair trade exists and we don't have to do charity work that way. And there's a place for it. There's a place for humanitarian work and it's absolutely needed, but it, it's definitely not what we want to you know, see now. And I would never uh, stand by portraying people in it, you know, <laughs> In, in what it was initially that but to know that this is what initially ignited that in me is kind of an interesting um yeah 360 yeah yeah a lot of the time it it really it depends at what stage in people's journey they're at like what kind of messaging is appropriate for them because it seems like like I've spoken to a lot of people who that kind of messaging actually was pretty effective on because they just had no idea. And so it had to have that really emotional punch. Yeah. And the time also, you know, of awareness that would have been like, if I was that age, that would have been, you know, around 1990 or just after. So quite different to the way we do responsible messaging now, or just respectful messaging now. What is the thing that you're working on right now? Within Fairtrade Canada, what's like the thing that you're focusing on most that's top of mind? So, I mean, there's many smaller things, but I would say the one thing that brings in many of them together that I see as the biggest importance is Fairtrade is growing a lot in Canada, which is very positive. And it's a, you know, it's both the proof of the work we've done as a team, but of all the, the different citizen groups that are behind us and companies that we partner with. But growing for our team at Fairtrade Canada also means you know, growing pains as a team of like, okay, how do we handle working with more companies and doing bigger campaigns and doing bigger engagement with a relatively small team? So it's how do we have a team that's equipped to to do all of this? How do we grow? How do we hire more people and, and bring in that culture of a team to work with more organizations? So that part of my work is definitely the the one that occupies me the most how do I make sure that my team has what they need to to thrive but to still have work-life balance and still be able to go home and not worry you know so I think that's that's a portion that I I try to make sure that I'm on top of and that we can continue to to grow that part what is the thing about like this this sort of growth what is the thing that you're most excited about around it um, two things. One is the, so we, our key measure of success at Fairtrade Canada is how, like, or our proxy for, 
for measuring that is the impact we create for farmers everywhere by the market we're creating in Canada. And our easiest way to calculate that is the, the fair trade premium we've helped generate. So okay. across all the products we sell, the coffee, the bananas, the cotton, the smaller products too, um, right. how much fair trade premium is that created? So it's a dollar amount and it's, we can you know, measure impact in 10,000 ways, but it's harder than bring it to one thing. So for us to see the impact we're creating from our actions and from the work we do with companies is, is, it's amazing because it's to see like, okay, Canadians changing their ways of buying things, you know, has a giant ripple effect on producers around the world. So that growth allows us to grow that number and that, you know, and that the number is just a number, but the impact is multiple other things too. It's like cleaning our soil and, and different communities and children who went to school and all the qualitative impact we're creating. But to see that that impact growing significantly is, is fantastic. The other portion too of what, I really like about this growth or what to me is extremely positive is giving more and more Canadians like across the country, easier access to sustainable choices that, and a, a label they can trust. So we're, you know, celebrating this month during fair trade month, like some of the major wins we've had in banana available, like fair trade bananas across the country. And to me, when I came to fair trade Canada, it was really hard to find fair trade bananas across the country. There's, no, it was slightly easier in Quebec because IGA had them or if you live, you know, if you happen to be shopping in a farm boy in Ottawa or if you, you know, but there's smaller chains who had them. Um, but for entire provinces, like in, you know, in Alberta or Manitoba or even in large parts of Ontario, it was completely impossible to find. Like you'd have to drive through another city to find a fair trade banana. Yeah. Um, so for us to just tell consumers, go and buy a fair trade banana if they're not available and if retailers are not making space for them was just you know not where we wanted to be so to finally making them available to more and more people where hopefully by the end of the year like any any you know maybe not every small town but any major city or small city across the country will have access to fair trade bananas and that to me is making them more available which then leads to you know creating more impact because more people can buy them yeah no, that's so exciting. I'm really excited about that too. <laughs> <laughs> What's your fear about this growth? What makes you worry that it, that it, like it won't turn out very well? No, I'm not worried that it won't turn out well. I think the, the, the worry is more is this, you know, initial part for our small team, which is not my, our small internal worry is like, how do we, you know, grow with this? Um, and as you take, you know, the same that we've seen with coffee, fair trade coffee became you know, easy to find quite a few years ago already in Canada. And by now, like it's more, which one do you choose of all the different fair trade coffees? Like you'll surely have one that's your favorite and, and you can, you know, so it's easy to convince people to drink fair trade coffee. Um, and hopefully we even, you know, convince more retailers more to just make it available to say, Hey, it sells, it sells more than conventionally. It grows faster. It's, you know, sort of pushed us. Um, I think that the fear is more, how do we keep maintaining that? And the fear is that sometimes the backlash, not here, but we've seen, so the last two years of the pandemic, for example, has been really difficult for producers everywhere for multiple reasons, like climate change getting worse in parallel to logistics issues from the COVID pandemic through healthcare costs that went up in communities. So how do we maintain that, you know, as consumers and companies here want to buy fairly and want to build those fair supply chains, how do we make sure that we're up for the task of really partnering with producers 
for the long term, not just now because it's trendy and nice, but you know, in the long haul, because things are hard and things are difficult for banana producers who face more and more natural disasters, who face really high cost of productions, much higher and faster, you know, increase in their cost of production, just like the cost of living here, which is higher. Um, so how do we make sure that the next challenge isn't just, you know, making people want to buy fair trade and, 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 and commit to that, but sticking with it and having that over time um, be those transparent, solid trading partnerships between companies here and producers everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> what are some things that everyday people like our listeners or like me and you and our friends and so on can do to make sure that this growth is supported? Two things. <laughs> Buy fair trade when you can. I always look at, at you know, sustainable consumption across you know, if you think of everything we buy and, you know, whether you're buying bed sheets or you're buying, you know, nails for something you're building in your house or a new hammer, like it's hard for you to research everything. Like I don't research light bulbs as much as I research my food, but I'm sure there's just as many ethical considerations and, you know, other things. So I think fair trade gives that e much easier, like, okay, if you've tried Trusted fair trade for your coffee, you know, for, for your chocolate, like trust it for your bananas, trust it for your, you know, your cotton tote bag and your t-shirt and other things too. Um, and when you don't find it, ask for it. Like ask, ask this is if the sustainable option isn't there. We sometimes think as just a regular day consumer that we have no weight. Um, but we hear so often from retailers and brands like, okay, we finally decided to do it because consumers kept asking. So it's not, you know, that first question that will change it, but it is that accumulation of many questions that at some point a store manager is going to pass it on to, you know, regional manager who passes it on to national. And then at some point the national retailer wakes up and is like, oh, we've been having requests or we do see a trend. Awesome. So we definitely have more weight than we think we have both by what we buy, but also by what we ask or what we, right. you know, the tell a company that you love, hey, I love buying from you, but can you not move the, you know, or what's behind your product? Where is it made? What's the condition? And can it not be fair trade or, um, or more sustainable? So I think those two things like asking and, and, and buying. Yeah. Um, and also just, yeah, learning, being curious about the stuff we buy. Yeah. And what's your advice to someone who's brand new to that? Talking to others who aren't like, we all have a friend who, you know, is a bit more into, um, like, I don't know as much on, you know, green transportation or green electricity but i have friends who are really into that so I'll, so finding the people in your yeah in your circle whether your family or extended and if you don't have anyone who really knows about ethical trade or ethical consumption um there is a lot of research that is done by others and that is simplified also because it's complex topics so don't try to understand <laughs> understand it all um, and just yeah i think being curious and listening to like things like your podcast or others really help um, but I, I mean, I've been in sustainable consumption, sustainability in general, let's say for over 15 years. And I still learn every day about whole aspects of that. I know nothing about. So even just if I stay in food, so, you know, let alone if I go into other areas, um, that aren't as known to me. So I think nobody knows it all. So that just should be like, like to, to start learning is knowing that no one understands all of sustainability. I think there's too many saying, you know, that 
touting words like sustainability experts. You can know more, but this isn't a topic that we'll ever know everything about. So we're all doing our pieces of yeah. learning and it's a lot of fun because we're basically reinventing the way of doing everything. So I think it's um, it's a really exciting journey for every part of it to, to find the part that, that interests you most, I guess, when you start. Yeah, that, that's so true. We are kind of reinventing everything, which is kind of scary and exciting all at once. <laughs> What's the best media you can recommend for listeners to check out on the topic of fair trade? Um, You can follow our Instagram. (laughs) It's actually become a lot more educational. So even just as like following fair trade Canada, we try to distill and educate people. And even like what we put out in our newsletter to be educating to people on what fair trade is and what we do. We work with, you know, over close to 2 million producers and farmers worldwide who all have different stories realities challenges and and we work in different ways so to to tell those stories and explain how fair trade works is what we try to do um but there's also besides like um, different medias like there's some key books that to me have opened my eyes i guess on that journey one that i is, is still dear to my heart and and it comes back because we were talking about bananas is um, it's called Banana, the Fate of the Fruit that Changed the... F- Banana, the Fate of the Fruit that Changed the world. world. Do you know this one? Yeah, yeah. I love that one. <laughs> I love it. It's Dan Copel. Exactly, yeah. And to me, like reading... Uh, then there's another one that I had read before that called uh, Cod, a biography of the fish that changed the world by Mark Kurlansky. Oh, I've not heard of that one. And he also wrote another one called Salt. But the one on Cod and the one on Bananas are fascinating because it's just it's just one product right yes but you dive into how the world was shaped by those products how the like history and, and like wars and entire economies that were built and why a student fruit is cheaper than another and in the case of the cod book like how and you know the the slave trade and how cod was a piece of it like so i always think of like you really read one book like that and you're like okay if this is just bananas imagine how many fruits is in the fruit section <laughs> yeah <laughs> as complex stories about each each of them um so i think those to start understanding how like like how commodities that are from the south and that we don't know much about here like whether it's cocoa or coffee have complex history behind them that makes them build you know the the environmental exploitation behind it the injustices behind it but start to lay the ground of like how we can rectify some of those and how we can change that because we keep drinking coffee and eating chocolate or you know using salt that was salt mined across the planet or so yeah that's definitely a book that i would recommend to anyone who is not just interested in bananas you don't even have to like bananas to read this book it's just a fascinating fun down to heart like down to earth you know study of like history and it's it's actually quite funny i, I like i remember yeah. laughing throughout this book actually yeah he's a beautiful writer it's it reads almost like a like a a drama to me like he's like does, and yeah. then we go to like chile like, or whatever like, and then he's just... like yeah exactly yeah <laughs> Yeah. But you start and then you, I remember after that looking at like not just banana and I, I had I read it when I started working with banana farmers. So it was kind of the perfect book at the time for me, but also it wasn't just about understanding bananas. It was suddenly looking at everything else, like, wow, what else do I not like? I don't know anything about peaches, but I know they're from like 
mostly the states, but else like there must be something equally, you know. Yeah. Um, but just like that st that series, um, Rotten on Netflix. Oh yeah. Okay. So that's one too, where like episode by episode they go into the world behind a commodity or a product, like you know, a whole episode on garlic or a whole episode on you know, and understanding the dynamic of that product. Um, I, I feel like a kid in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory when I read these things, like going behind the scene of something you eat every day. Yeah. No, that sounds really cool. I'll have to check that. I haven't checked out the rotten one. I'll have to check it out. We have some fun questions we like to, to finish off with. So what song have you got on repeat right now? Um, uh, so I don't have much on repeat right now, but I have a song that for some reason I, I listen to like, way too much is um is this song by milky chance um which was probably a hit like seven years ago but i was away from the country and only discovered it very recently stolen dance i listen to it all the time i don't know why it's just uh, it's calming it's very calming nice what emoji do you use the most um i use a lot the emoji that's both smiling and and like kind of a shy smile and like a little teardrop as like I'm kind of happy, but this is sad at the same time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think many people don't have it in their own phones, so people are confused by it. And I I, I live between different generations in my emojis. Like, <laughs> yeah, I have some emojis that only my, my mother and or like Generation X who are older than me will use. And then others, I'm like, I don't understand the context of this emoji from Generation Z. So I, I have I have to find that balance. I love it. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? getting to the brains of others, like re thought reading, like understanding, like I, I, so I feel like what do we do in fair trade is trying to taught read companies and retailers and consumers. And how do we understand why they're thinking that way and change that rationale so that over time. So if we could taught read people, I feel like that would, I feel like I'm pretty good. Nice. <laughs> uh, we've, we've gotten a way there and it's, uh, it's, it's maybe half of my superpower, but um, like, which comes from empathy, right? But it's just ex extension of empathy. How do you, how do others feel? But yeah, if I could fully taught read people, that'd be fantastic. Amazing. Have you ever worn a banana suit and explain yourself? <laughs> I actually, um, when I was hired in, in this job, I told my, my communications team, like, apologies, but I will not wear the banana suit. Like, this was like a, a no for me. It's like, I don't know. I love the banana suit. I love people wearing it. I, I won't wear it. So I was like, okay, it's a hard no. But then Halloween came. I was like, well, maybe I'll be a hat. Like, so I have now worn it like three Halloweens in a row. <laughs> and it's actually really fun. And people actually come up to you with lots of questions. And especially the year that my I was with my youngest, who was one and yeah, almost just one. And he was wearing a monkey suit and both my husband and I were fair trade bananas I love it. on the street with a little monkey. So yeah, but it actually strikes a lot of conversations. Yeah. I think that's why people love it so much. People have told me they feel less inhibited in the banana suit because they are wearing a damn banana suit. Yeah, exactly. So you can do whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And last but not least, tell me your best dad joke. Um, so this is currently my son's favorite joke. And, and I told it to him, so I'll have to take some, some responsibility for it. So it's a, it's a child who, for my son, will say it's an eight-year-old child. So the prime minister, the pope, and an eight-year-old child are on a plane together. 
and they're about to crash. And there's only two parachutes on the plane. So only two of them can make it out alive. And the, the prime minister just says, well, I'm the prime minister, I'm very important, takes a parachute and jumps, leaving the Pope and the small child to still on the plane. So the Pope says, well, you know, you're a child, you can, you can go ahead, take the parachute. And the child says, uh, no, no, we're okay. We still have both parachutes. He took my pack back. <laughs> I love it. Yep. That's a good one. So the eight-year-old loved it. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, did you have any kind of like like pluggable or like where can we find you? Where can listeners find you? Yeah, definitely fairtrade.ca. And then from there you'll find all of our socials and you know, you can re- register for our newsletter. Um, we'll have, we actually have a really exciting, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but we have a really exciting banana panel, um, coming up on May 25th, um, that we're quite excited about. So, um, if you haven't registered to that, do so come to fairtrade.ca and look for the banana panel. You will find it, uh, where we'll have people from Sobeys, banana producers, Sylvia Campos is the fair trade manager of bananas based in, um, in Fairtrade International, but also Jenny Coleman from Aki Fruit. All at the same time. So basically you have the whole supply chain together. Like yeah. Ellie Brown from the sustainability manager at Sobeys, the banana importer in Jenny Coleman, um, Edwin Mello from Asaguabo in Ecuador. It'll be translated English, French, and Spanish. So wow. do come to understand the challenges that banana producers are are facing right now. Yeah. Um, Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Julie. I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me today. Thanks, Leah. And this is the first interview where I was asked to tell a joke ever. So <laughs> we'll test my comedy skills, I guess. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much again to Julie Franker from Fairtrade Canada for joining us on this interview. If you loved it as much as we did, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because it helps to gain visibility for this little podcast. And it's uh, really, really appreciated. Thanks for joining us today and we'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye for now.